right, good morning. It's good to see you. Listen, it's a good Sunday when I look out and I see a mullet. Uh, And I'm just, I'm feeling great this morning because it harkens me back to the roaring 1980s, which in my opinion were the best decade ever. Uh, Gave us mullets, uh, a lot of fluorescence, and uh, synthesizers and music, and just good stuff like that. So anyhow, um, I just can't get it. It looks really good, man. I know your parents, especially your mom, just hate it, but just you're living the dream. You're doing what I wish I could do as a 46-year-old man, which exactly, your dad knows what's up, so... Um, sorry for those of you online, you can't see the gloriousness of it, but it just Google right now mullet and you'll, you'll remember, right? Okay. Um, well, we are finishing up our study in the book of Ruth, uh, this morning, and, uh, I hope it's been a good study for you. It's been a good study for me. And, and here at the end of the book, we're going to kind of see how the writer of the book of Ruth kind of brings the whole story together uh, and, and we're going to kind of look and we're going to see uh, how God moves. And God moves in a very unique and uh, in a crazy way at times. So before I read the passage for this morning, I do want to give us kind of a quick recap. Because as I said, we're finishing up this morning. But So let's kind of let's go back over the last few weeks and, and kind of uh, remember the story for a minute if we could. But... During the time of, of the judges, a, a dark time in Israel history, there, live, uh, there was a guy named Elimelech. And Elimelech and his family were living in Bethlehem. Uh, he was married to a woman named Naomi. And they had two sons, Malon and Kilion. And you remember that uh, in the first few chapters of the book of Ruth, or the first few verses, I'm sorry, the book of Ruth, uh, a famine broke out in Bethlehem in the promised land. And rather than staying where they were, uh, Elimelech and his family decided to to go on the move in search of food. And they end up and they settle in a place called Moab. And that decision, as we looked at several weeks ago, had kind of life-altering consequences. And any time, you've heard me say this before, but any time we walk out of step with the Lord, uh, consequences are the result. Anytime we sin... There are consequences, and and the reality is there were consequences to their actions. Well, shortly after the family arrived in Moab, Elimelech, the dad, the husband, he died, leaving his wife Naomi with their two sons. Well, the two sons eventually married Moabite women. That was not a good decision either. Ten years or so pass, and the two sons died leaving Naomi with two Moabite daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. Well, at that point, Naomi decides, you know what, it's time for me to go home. It's time for me to return to Bethlehem. She had heard that the famine broke, and it was time for her to go back to her people, the Israelites. So she begins to travel back to Bethlehem with Ruth and Orpah in tow, Eventually, she tells them, listen, don't follow me. Don't go back to Bethlehem with me. There's nothing there for you. Well, you remember Orpah went back to Moab. She went back to her people. We never hear from her again. Ruth 
The Bible says, I think in chapter 1, verse 14, it says that Ruth clung to Naomi. She wouldn't let Naomi go. And she goes back to Bethlehem with Naomi. Now you remember, they arrive in Bethlehem, Ruth and Naomi, they have nothing. No food, no shelter, nothing. They're emotionally and financially broke. Naomi, in her own words, right? She's bitter towards God. In contrast, Ruth was just learning how to trust God. So you kind of have this seasoned believer, so to speak, bitter towards God. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And then you have this young believer, excited and wondering, where is God leading us? Well, in search of food, Ruth stumbles across a land owned by a guy named Boaz. Remember him? Godly man, a man of character and integrity. Boaz and Ruth appreciated one another. They value one another. They kind of build up a friendship and a relationship. And through a series of uh, potentially scandalous events, we looked at this a week or so ago, Ruth proposed to Boaz. Remember, put your wing over me. But Boaz said, listen, I would love to. I would love to marry you. I would love to propose to you. But I can't because there's another redeemer and he's standing in the way of me marrying you. You remember this guy last week, Mr. So-and-so. Another guy like Orpah who shows up in the story of Ruth and we never hear from him again. Why? Because neither one of them followed the Lord. Well, Mr. So-and-so didn't stand in the way too long. He was the complete opposite of Boaz. Boaz, a godly figure, a man of character, a man of integrity. Mr. So-and-so, well, he was none of those things. So following a brief conversation between the two men, Boaz declared his intentions in front of the whole town of Bethlehem. I want to marry Ruth, and it was so. He wanted to redeem not only Ruth, but Naomi and the land belonging to Elimelech, and that's where we left off last week. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Ruth chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 13 through the end of the chapter. I believe that is verse 22, yes. And this is a very exciting part of the book, but you're going to not think so. But uh, we'll, we'll kind of hopefully show you why it's exciting. Verse 13. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he slept with her. In other words, they had relations. And the Lord granted conception to her. That's, that's kind of a big deal. We'll talk about that in a little bit. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, you remember the women before, they showed up at the end of verse 1. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, that's a big deal, has given birth to him. Naomi took the child placed him on her lap, and became his nanny. 
The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. All right, let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. God, help us to see that you move in the very ordinariness of our lives. I don't even know if that's a word, God, but you do move in the simple and the mundane things of our lives. We've seen that throughout this book. And God, I hope and I pray this morning that we will see it in our own lives. So often, God, we're looking for the extraordinary. We're looking for the magnificent, God. But help us to see that you move while we're at school. You move while we're at work. You move uh, while we're eating breakfast, God. There are times that you are working in and through us, God. And we have no idea what you're doing behind the scenes. So, God, help us to trust, to have faith in you, to believe, God, that you move in the everyday simple things of our lives. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, our main kind of point, our big idea this morning is God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Now, I want to say this really quick in passing. So often, especially for those of us that maybe have been believers, Christians for a little while, we're looking for the extraordinary in the extraordinary. And sometimes we will make things up or we'll say crazy non-biblical things to kind of uh, invoke a certain response or to push a certain... uh, attitude or what have you in the church or other people around us. For instance, uh, there was a fellow not long ago who came here for a short while, and he asked if we invoked the Holy Spirit, and our response was, well, the Holy Spirit is in us, and the Holy Spirit is in this church. You don't invoke the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one that sends the Holy Spirit. And we pray to Jesus, and as we walk in step with Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives and breathes in us and comes out of us. You don't call down the Holy Spirit. It's not how it works biblically. Well, he pushed it and he said, well, I can do this and that. There was one time I was talking to somebody on Zoom and and I zapped them. On Zoom in the name of the Holy Spirit. And they fell off their chair. Say what? I ain't never seen that in the Bible. Somebody shooting stuff out of their hands over Zoom in the name of the Holy Spirit. See, sometimes we're wanting the extraordinary and we fail to realize that God moves in the ordinary. And you can test me throughout Scripture on this. But all of these key figures in Scripture, you will notice, were constantly met by God doing the simple things in life. 
But for whatever reason, we're enamored. We are enamored with the big and the spectacular. And I don't know why. Think of Gideon, right? He's called to fight against the Midianites. He has a force of 10,000 people. God says, nah, too many people. And what does God do? He, he sends this force of thousands of people or whatever it is down to a creek to drink water. They were thirsty. And then God said essentially, well, if you know, so-and-so doesn't drink, you know, well, you know, they're going to be in the army with you. And if they drink, they won't be in the army. Okay. That sounds pretty simple to me. Just drinking water. But see, God moves in these kind of simple things. We'll only get back on topic here before I keep going with this craziness. But listen, I've, I've lived, and so have you. I have lived a pretty, pretty ordinary and simple life. Now, I have some fun stories along the way, and so do you. But for the most part, nothing extraordinary has taken place in my life. And especially in the last year, thank you, COVID, right? <laughs> I mean, the highlight of the entire year, my entire, entire year of my life, the highlight, was meeting an NBA basketball player in the Philadelphia airport, and then a few weeks later, finding out that both of us had COVID coronavirus simultaneously. Did I give it to him? Did he give it to me? I don't know. That was the highlight of my year. That was it. Whoopee. Nothing extraordinary. And then sometimes I'll hop on the Instagram because I love Instagram and I see friends and I see acquaintances and they're living the dream. I'm wondering, do they have a professional photographer that just <laughs> follows them around wherever they go? What is going on here? Do they drug their kid? Like their kids always look happy and smiley and all put together and my kids look homeless and... And we feed them, and we clothe them, and I, I don't understand what's going on here sometimes. And then I wonder, how do they travel like they do? Like, what is going on with these people? I thought you could go anywhere. Meanwhile, I'm standing in my kitchen, scrolling through Instagram with ripped sweats in need of a shave, and I, 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 I look like this. This is me, right there. <laughs> Like, I look like this on Sunday. That's Sunday at 1 o'clock till Sunday uh, 8 a.m. the next week. That's it right there. But I wonder, like, why does, why does their life look so awesome and extraordinary and my life looks so simple? See, the reality is none of us desires ordinary. But you notice none of us desires that, but we're always wanting and we're always dreaming for more. We want to do something amazing. We want to go somewhere unforgettable, don't we? We want to experience what we see on television and in the movies and on social media. We want the extraordinary. But what we need to know and believe as followers of Jesus that God moves in the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Now, did you notice in the book of Ruth, and this is what I'm getting back to with my earlier statement about that one fellow at, at this church here for a little while, is in the book of Ruth, we find no miracles. None. 
There are no miracles in the book of Ruth. There's no signs. There's no wonders. And yet God is moving powerfully at a time when Israelite history was probably at its lowest through a non-believing Moabite woman, through an older gentleman named Boaz who was wealthy, put together and to do in a pretty crummy point in history. Yet God is doing something extraordinary. See, throughout the Bible, we read of God moving in ordinary people, doing ordinary things, living ordinary lives, yet in the ordinary, He did the extraordinary. God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Well, let's, let's look at this text a little bit more. Look at verse 13 again. It says, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. Now, the entire story, the four chapters, three chapters up to this point, are leading us to this moment. And the, and the writer, for whatever reason, decided to include the marriage of Ruth and Boaz and their starting a family in one verse. Did you notice that? One verse. And then he just moves on. Now, think about this one verse. They get married, they have a kid. In chapter 1, the writer spent 22 verses covering the family trip and the settlement in Moab. That's chapter 1. In chapter 2, 23 verses were spent on the meeting of Ruth and Boaz. In chapter 3, 18 verses illustrated the weird night. Remember that? The weird night between Boaz and Ruth. At the beginning of chapter 4, 12 verses communicated the legal transaction between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. The writer even included the detail of Mr. So-and-so handing his sandal to Boaz. You remember that? Weird little side note, but he includes that. One verse. One verse. They got married, had a son. Move on. Ordinary. Nothing extraordinary about that. Now notice in verse 13 the statement, And the Lord granted, the Lord gave conception to Ruth. Now again, throughout the book of Ruth, the Lord, God, is moving behind the scenes. God is doing something that no one else can see. The only other time God is mentioned in this way, the only other time in this book where it's mentioned God is moving, God is doing something, is in chapter 1, verse 6. The Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. It's the only time he's, other time he's mentioned in this way. The Lord granted conception to Ruth. Well, why does he include that? Why does the writer, why does she include that? Whoever wrote this book, it must be important, right? It is. Now, when Ruth noticed this, was in Moab, she's married to this guy named Malon. Malon is Elimelech's and Naomi's son. For 10 years, Malon 
and Ruth were married for 10 years. And they were childless. Now, in our culture, that doesn't mean much, right? Plenty of people, you may have done this, or you may have friends that have done this. They got married, and they waited years to have kids. Back then, you didn't do that. When a young man and a young woman were of age, they married and had children. That was it. That's what you did. That was the expectation. Now notice this. Ten plus years have passed. Ruth is a childless widow. Boaz was unmarried as well. And maybe he was a widow. We're not told that. Maybe he never married. Regardless, he too is childless. Boaz is a farmer who loved God. Ruth was a hard worker who loved God as well. The two loved the Lord and fell in love with one another. Nothing special. That happens all the time. It happened all the time then and it happens all the time now. Then, get married. Then the Lord granted conception to Ruth. See, what the writer is doing here in this one verse, the writer is is hinting God is doing something. Now, we read ahead into the story, and we see what that something is, but the first time you were to read it, you would be like, huh, she didn't have a kid for 10 plus years. Now, all of a sudden, she's having a kid. God must be doing something. Think of uh, Sarah, Sarai in the Old Testament. See, God intervened. She couldn't conceive with Malon, but with Boaz, she could. So here, God is on the move. See, God brings the extraordinary out of the ordinary. We need to stop trying to create the extraordinary and just let God work and let God move. Well, look again at verses 14 through 16. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became a mother to him. Now I hinted at this when I was reading the passage, but do you remember the women at the end of chapter 1? When Naomi arrived in Bethlehem after being gone for many years, the women saw Naomi coming and they said excitingly, could this be Naomi? She's finally come home. Yay! We're so happy, Naomi! You remember her response? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has opposed me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. So the the women of Bethlehem witnessed Naomi's bitterness. They noticed when she was down in the pit. But here they are gathering together again and experiencing joy and happiness with her. 
seemingly nothing all that extraordinary. A mother became a grandmother. And as special as it was for Naomi, and as special as it was for some of you that are grandmothers now or grandfathers, she wasn't the only grandmother of that time. There were plenty of other grandmothers. But notice, though, what the women said. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. See, the child, her grandson, would be her redeemer. Are you catching that? Not Boaz. This infant, this child is going to be her redeemer. See, God led Naomi through all of her grief, her bitterness and loss, and blessed her with a son that would renew her life. Are you following this? See, maybe your grief, maybe your bitterness, maybe your loss is leading you somewhere that you cannot see, but God is moving in the hardship of your life to bless you down the road. See, God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Naomi would have never dreamt this a few years prior. But here she is with this infant on her lap, praising God and thankful once again for what she has. The women said of Naomi's grandson, may his name become well known in Israel. See, this group of women saw God's faithfulness. This group of women meeting at the town gate saw God's faithfulness to Naomi, to Ruth the Moabite, and to Boaz. Do you know what else is incredible? Look at verse 15. Your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. I mean, that may not stand out to you. It does to me. In a patriarchal, homogenous, xenophobic culture, the women of Bethlehem said, Ruth, a foreigner, a Moabite, a woman, was better than seven sons combined. So here you find the ordinary Ruth, the hard-working woman. The ordinary Ruth was highly praised and exalted, and rightfully so. With all that said, don't forget when this book took place. This book is so important for our day and age. Because we see in this book God moving in a terrible time. This book took place. I know I've said this every week, but this book should give you hope in 2021. In the time of the judges is when this book took place. A terrible and deplorable time in Israelite history. Yet here are these women. These random, no-name women at the town gate praising God. 
Because they saw in this little broken family, they saw God moving. So at this low point in history, we see ordinary people, this group of women, trusting in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Believing that God can and will and does move supernaturally as he will. Now, I got plenty of application points coming down the road here, but do you believe that God can and will move now in your life and in this world? I mean, he can, right? But we walk around so often with our heads down, and we're trying to do everything we can to invoke the extraordinary, yet not trusting that it is God, it is God who does it. He can and will move. And the fact that you're sitting in here this morning is evidence that he can and will move. He saved you. That in and of itself is a freaking miracle. You were dead in your sin. Loving your drink, loving your drugs, loving your women, loving yourself, loving whatever else you could in this world, and God saved you from your sin and granted you life, not only now, but for eternity. That's, that's pretty extraordinary. Yet we don't celebrate that, and I don't know why. I, that is the greatest miracle that you could have ever have been given, the gift of life. Yet we run around going, well, you speak in tongues, invoke this. I mean, that's fine. I believe in the speaking of tongues. But why are we elevating that and we're bypassing the fact that God saves dead people? All right, keep going. Look again at verses 17 through 22. This is the best part of the book. And you, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I'll tell you why. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now, with that said, the book of Ruth uh, more than likely was written in the time of David. That's why David is included and David happened. David uh, hasn't even been thought of yet. So the book of Ruth was written a little bit later in history. But in those verses, we find, as I said, the best part of the story. And, and you might be thinking, uh, what? Pastor. Why is a genealogy, why is a family tree the most important part of the story? Uh, are you high? Like, what is going on here? And I get it. You know, the genealogies in the Bible are not the most riveting parts of Scripture. I mean, if you need to fall asleep at night, read the genealogies. You don't need melatonin or a pill. Go to the, read the first chapter of uh, the book of Numbers. And if you don't believe me with the book of Numbers, like if you're like, you read through the first chapter of the book of Numbers and you're still awake, uh, go to the first 10 chapters of the book of Chronicles. Yes, 10 chapters. 10. 
name after name after name of people you cannot pronounce. Now notice the writer of the book of Ruth knew what was important. One verse again. One. One verse spent on the wedding and the birth of their son. One verse. Five, six verses were spent on the genealogy. We, you know, when Jenny and I do premarital counseling all the time, we, we try to tell the couples and we try to warn them, listen, you are preparing for this beautiful day and it's going to be amazing. You're going to have a sweet celebration. And I try to tell couples, even when I'm sitting or standing at the altar and I'm doing the whole value, you know, da, 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 the whole thing, and, and we get to the ring thing and I'm like, listen, you are going to forget so much that happened on this day. You have so much ahead of you, and it's true. I mean, Jenny and I look back at our wedding day 20 years ago, and we remember some of it. We go, hey, do you remember so-and-so? We, there are people we don't even remember their names anymore. There are things that we forget about the day, and that's just what happens. But the reality is, like, what is ahead of you and what, what God is doing in and through you and through your family is is the legacy that you're leaving. It's not just on that day. Okay. I lost where I was here. All right. Well, last week I shared kind of my affinity for Christian romance comedies. And, uh, I mean, think of every kind of romantic comedy you've seen. You know, the end of the movie... uh, leads you kind of to the the plot leads you to um, the couple kissing right Uh, maybe on top of the empire state building or in some field and you're like yay they made it and then it cuts away right there's that quick cut and then they're standing at the altar and you're like yay it's so happy this is great and the wedding in these like romance comedies is, is kind of the pinnacle. It's like the climax of the story. Not in the book of Ruth. The, the pinnacle, the climax of the story in the book of Ruth is, is verse 22. This is what the whole book has been leading us to. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. That's what this whole story has been about. God moving. Two generations after the story of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz took place. Two generations. We find out where this ordinary story would go. The heir of Elimelech's land, this guy Obed, became the grandfather of King David. Ruth and Boaz were the great-grandparents of David. You might be thinking, so what? What's the big deal? Well, from the line of David, we have the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's why this is so amazing to see that God is moving and he's doing something in these two random people's lives, two ordinary people. God is doing something absolutely extraordinary. The pastor and theologian, and he's a Scot, and I just love the Scottish accent. I just want to move there for a couple years just so I can pick it up. Sinclair Ferguson, he noted a verse 20, 22, he said, If there was no immigration, 
No return of Ruth. No Ruth, no marriage to Boaz. No marriage to Boaz, no Obed. No Obed, no Jesse. No Jesse, no David. And I suppose we can add no David, no Jesus. Now look at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Here's a fun genealogy for us. And if I get all these names right, I expect, uh, I don't know, a gift card to chips or something. <laughs> Just hook me up with something. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez. And Zerah by Tamar, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon, do you remember these names? Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. That's verses 1 through 5. We'll skip down a few verses so I don't put you to sleep this morning. Look at verses 15 and 16. Eliud fathered Eliezer. Eliezer fathered Mathon. Mathon fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Do you see what God did? Through ordinary people doing ordinary things to bring forth his extraordinary plan of salvation, God brought forth the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, Ruth and Boaz, they're not remembered for their wealth. They're not remembered for their power or prestige, the things that we clamor after, the things that we think are going to make us extraordinary. Ruth and Boaz were remembered for their faithfulness. That's what we remember them as. That's the legacy they left. What kind of legacy are you leaving? What are you passing on to your kids, to your grandkids, to your friends, to your relatives? I mean, Ruth and Boaz loved God. And as we saw, as we've seen kind of throughout the story, they loved God and they loved one another. They loved their neighbor. Ruth and Boaz fulfilled the first two and the greatest commandments. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Ordinary people living ordinary lives, sacrificing for the Lord and one another. Ruth and Boaz did what all believers should do. Live selfless lives for the glory of God. See, as we read the Bible, and as I said kind of throughout the sermon and throughout this whole series, As we read the Bible, we notice, as I've said countless times over the last five and a half years, God moves in the simple and the mundane things of life. God shows up when you're at work. God shows up when you're at school. God shows up when you're eating lunch. God shows up during that sleepless night. God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Listen, just a couple of biblical examples and I'm going to keep going. Abraham was living life, just living life in, in a place called Ur. And all of a sudden, God calls him. 
Your name is going to be great. From you is going to come a great nation. We're part of that great nation. Gideon was threshing wheat. He was doing what farmers do and God shows up. You're going to lead my people. Moses was tending sheep. Taking care of his father-in-law Jethro's sheep. Esther was just living life. And God said, you're going to be a queen and you're going to deliver my people. Mary was waiting for her wedding day. You're going to have a son by the Holy Spirit. What? Peter was just fishing. He was just fishing. And I could go on and on throughout the Bible. It is in the ordinary lives of ordinary people doing ordinary things that God is working out His plans and purposes. And that truth should speak volumes to you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter how little you have. God can and will use you if you are walking by faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. In your ordinary life with your ordinary family, doing your ordinary job, living your ordinary life, God moves. God moves. See, what's crazy is Ruth and Boaz had no idea, zero idea in their lifetime. They had no idea that their family tree would one day lead to the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. They had no clue. Who knows? As you walk in faith, who knows what will come of your life? And what's crazy to think about is, you may not see it. Are you okay with that? Or do you need the credit? Or do you need people to tell you how extraordinary you are? My hope and my prayer is you know, I'm the first believer in my family, right? So, with my two daughters, my hope and my prayer is and my desire is that they will raise their children up knowing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Lord of their souls. And that my grandchildren will raise my great-grandchildren and their great-grand... You know what I'm saying? I will never see that. And I'm okay with that. I know that God moves in the ordinary to do the extraordinary. I don't need the credit. I don't want the credit. I've told them and the elders and the leadership team... I want to come back two, three, four, five years from now and this church be 500 to 1,000 people. I don't want the credit. It ain't about me. It's never been about me. It's about pointing people to Jesus. That's who we need. 
We don't need any more people running around claiming they do and they are extraordinary. Go on Instagram. There's plenty of them. No. No, no, no. That. That. It's all Jesus. See, God moves in the ordinariness of life. Let me just close with this. Where am I here? Okay, let me close with this. God uses ordinary people like you and me to do the extraordinary by by simply sharing the gospel with lost people. The impact that you can have on someone's life and on generate, listen to me, the impact that you can have on someone's life and the generations to come if you are just faithful to the gospel is immeasurable. If you just follow the command that Jesus gave you as a follower of Christ, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That command isn't just for me as the pastor, it's for you. It's for every believing Christian. That is far more important than claiming that you shoot things out of your hands or that you do the extraordinary. Make disciples. That's what it's about. Five and a half years I've been preaching this. And I'm going to go to my grave preaching it. Because do you know why? I am standing here because an ordinary college student on an ordinary fall day shared the gospel with another ordinary student. This is where I get choked up. I have my wife a godly woman. And I have two daughters and generations that will be changed to come. Because a kid named Brian in 1997 was faithful to Jesus. I haven't spoken to Brian in 25 years. He shared the gospel with me And my children are changed. My grandchildren will be changed. My great-grandchildren. Do you see the impact? Do you see how God moves in the ordinary? No one could have imagined that 28 years later, I would have a godly wife with two daughters that love Jesus, and I would be preaching the gospel. I have a friend. His name is Lance, and he's probably watching. And I think I've mentioned him before in Kansas. And, and about every week, he goes, I can't believe you're a pastor. <laughs> if, 
if the people in your church only knew. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, I've shared with them. They know some. They don't know all, because some of it can't know all that. But listen, the point is simple. God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Your story won't be my story. Your story won't be Ruth or Boaz's story. And that's fine. It doesn't have to be. It's your story of God moving in your ordinary life, doing the extraordinary. Be faithful. Point people to Jesus and you will have no idea what God will do. But what will happen is joy and peace and happiness and fulfillment will overtake your life for the glory and the sake of Jesus. I need to be done. Let me pray. God, thank you for your